Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From us this week. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hi, everyone. Sean here. This is an interlude mini-show between parts one and two of the Melbourne gangland killing series, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, do that and come back. I'll be releasing these midweek for the rest of the series to add some additional context and help link the parts together. Today I'll be talking about a few cases that are often associated with the Melbourne gangland killings occurring during the same time frame we covered in episode 1, 1995 to 1999. Generally speaking, there's not as much information out there about these cases, but I'll run through what we know and whether they potentially link to the main storyline we're following. Some link tenuously to a few of the bigger characters we've introduced. Some link in the broader sense that they're connected with drugs and probably some kind of turf struggle, and some don't seem associated at all, but are on the list nevertheless. Let's hop into it. On the 15th of August 1996, around a year and a half after Alphonse Gangitano shot and killed Greg Workman, two mechanics named Les Knowles and Tim Richards were shot and killed in the automotive shop where they worked. It was alleged the pair dealt drugs. A man named Gerald Preston was convicted of the murders and wounding a third mechanic, Kim Traeger, who was also in the auto shop and was shot but survived. Preston's driver, Kevin Gillard, was also convicted and both men received life sentences. Preston was said to have been paid $10,000 by a Melbourne-based Hells Angel bikey named Terence Tognolini, the reason behind it being a dispute with Knowles and Richards over dealing in the same area. At Gerald Preston's trial in 1998, one of the key prosecution witnesses to give testimony was his wife, Vicky Jacobs. Post-conviction, Vicky was offered witness protection, which, as we've heard in part one, wasn't the greatest back at this time, but she declined in order to maintain connections with her family and friends. Vicky moved to a small commission flat near Bendigo in Victoria with her son Ben, who was six at this time. And around 2am on Saturday the 12th of June 1999, a silent gunman crept into her house and shot Vicky six times in the head and upper body at point-blank range, while young Ben was asleep in the bed next to her and her 13-year-old niece was in the next bedroom. A subsequent coroner's inquest pointed the finger squarely at her ex-husband Gerald Preston, Terence Tognolini and their Hells Angels associates. Preston had made a number of aggravated diary entries about his ex-wife and her turning crown witness and getting sole custody of their son Ben, but no formal charges have ever been laid in this case. While this case obviously had to do with drugs, power and revenge, it really isn't connected to the Melbourne gangland killings. For starters, it didn't even happen in Victoria. The mechanics workshop was in Lonsdale, South Australia, 
Vicky was obviously in Victoria when she was callously murdered, but again, it doesn't really connect otherwise. None of that makes it any less tragic, mind you. This case, however, is weaved through the first series of Underbelly, quite creatively and told very differently with alternative names used. A woman named Tracy, who is portrayed as a sex worker, has an affair with Jason Moran and Alphonse Gangitano and causes friction between them before Alphonse's demise. Tracy's ex-husband is a bikey named Sydney, and his crew organise a pill press for the Morans. Sydney then goes on to shoot two mechanics, Tracy testifies against him and is ultimately killed in the same fashion as Vicky Jacobs. So that's how they tie that in. Obviously, none of those characters exist and that didn't really happen in the same fashion, but with a bit of creative license, they were able to tell the story and increase the friction between Jason and Alphonse, I suppose. And possibly when the show was made, details around Danielle Maguire and the pill press and the multitude of reasons Jason and Alphonse fell out weren't fully known. That being said, I did read one article in which young Ben's uh, legal guardian expressed his displeasure over the portrayal of Vicky's story and it being tied in with the likes of the Melbourne gangland killings. On the 2nd of August 1998, 48-year-old John Furlan had returned home to North Coburg in Melbourne's inner north, having spent the weekend away fishing in Tasmania's central highlands. Approaching semi-retirement, John begrudgingly got ready for his Monday morning return to work. He was a mechanic by trade and had operated a successful car dealership, spare parts business and wrecking yard throughout his career. His white Subaru Liberty had been parked behind his two and a half metre wooden gates in the front yard of his house for the past few days. John left, undoubtedly preparing to stop at the local supermarket to buy some cigarettes and maybe salami and bread as he often did, and then stop at the newsagents for his morning paper. Unfortunately, John didn't make the short 500 metre trip up quiet Lawrenson Avenue. It was 8.40am when his car burst into flames, a bomb detonating a secondary blast after rupturing the petrol tank and gouging a two centimetre hole in the bitumen. John Ferlin was killed instantly, his body unrecognisable, Luckily, nearby children from two schools and people at the local shops weren't injured as shrapnel from the blast travelled up to 250 metres from the explosion site. Police investigations established that the bomb was made of commercially available explosives used in mining and demolition and was probably strapped to the undercarriage of John Ferland's car. Some sources say John was a tough businessman but a man without obvious violent enemies. Others described him as an abrasive and ruthless businessman who did have some known enemies. Theories range from John being in debt, to him actually being owed money and killed over that, to being potentially linked to one of John's current or former romantic interests. He was a single man who'd been married and had kids. Police believe John Ferlin was the murder target, but they didn't initially rule out that he wasn't voluntarily carrying the bomb when it exploded. While his murder is listed as part of the official gangland killings, detectives and armchair experts alike still debate if it's actually connected to the series of killings or not. Only one source named Mick Gatto is a person of interest early on. It was alleged he'd recently been involved with a payment dispute with the deceased. However, there was no more information on that and the link seems tenuous at best. 
There are two more contemporary suspects, both now deceased, who make much more viable candidates in John Furland's case. The first is a man named Domenico Italiano. He was related to several notorious Melbourne mafia identities from days gone by. He was jailed for six months for rigging a children's charity raffle, ensuring prizes such as luxury cars were sold on the cheap to friends and relatives. Prior to this, Italiano rented a car yard from John Furlan. A police source stated, It's possible Mr Furlan found out about the rigged raffles and Italiano feared he was going to report him. Italiano was questioned about the murder but denied it. He was never eliminated from the homicide inquiry and was still a strong suspect at the time of his death. Italiano did further time for charges relating to blackmail, theft and obtaining money and property by false pretenses. Within hours of being released from prison in 2005, Italiano acquired some Viagra and spent the following evening with an old girlfriend when his heart suddenly gave out and he passed away. The Herald Sun reported that Italiano was the second Furland murder suspect to die in recent months. A man allegedly hired to make and plant the bomb was believed to be Philip Matthews, also known as Philip Lander. He died on July the 23rd, 2004. He was questioned while alive and remains the prime suspect for having planted the car bomb. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The next few cases have more tangible links to the gangland murders. On the 24th of February 1999, a man named Damien Catania was shot outside his home in Hopper's Crossing in Melbourne's western suburbs. This was around 6am as Catania was waiting for his regular morning lift when a white Holden Commodore drove past, slowed down and a gunman from the car opened fire. At least four shots struck Catania in the legs and groin. He actually survived the shooting but he nearly lost one of his legs and took 12 months for him to recover. He was described as someone with some underworld connections, he was an ex-boxer and had a number of minor convictions, and he'd get another one in 2006 actually, after pouring petrol over a bloke who'd pissed him off. Katani himself had clearly pissed someone else off for whatever reason, but it's unlikely he deserved this. The occupants of the white Commodore were never apprehended, but it's heavily suspected the gunman was Andrew Benji Venuman. The motive remains unclear. On the 9th of September 1999, Demetrios Bellius, a sometimes businessman, sometimes grifter, attended a car park in a St Kilda Road office complex in the hopes of striking a deal with someone he knew, someone he was keen to do business with. The deal would go horribly wrong for Demetrios. He was executed with one shot to the back of the head. Two cleaners later discovered his body in a pool of blood in the car park. Demetrios was described as a generally nice guy, but he was known to be a big punter and a scammer. 
He'd been involved in property title scams in the past and presently was trying to sell fake diamonds in attempts of clearing a huge underworld debt that he'd accrued. He borrowed a lot of money to invest in property and spent that elsewhere, allegedly, without investing it in said property. It seemed like he owed a lot of cash to the wrong kinds of people. It was reported Demetrius knew members of the Carlton crew and Mad Charlie, but also innumerable other people in the broader underbelly of Melbourne. It's not known if he had drug connections. Those who had financial dealings and potentially motive to kill Demetrios were interviewed and alibied. His murder remains unsolved. Then, just five days later on the 14th of September 1999, one of Dimitrios's friends and alleged business associates, Milorad Dapachevic, disappeared. Milorad was suspected of having connections with the heroin trade and had previous convictions for armed robbery. The last time he was seen alive was after making a statement at the St Kilda Road police station. No trace of Milorad has ever been found, but he is presumed dead, and it's suspected that whoever was involved in Dimitrios's murder was also involved in Millerad's disappearance. While it's entirely possible the pair were venturing into a business area which could have been even more dangerous than previous criminal endeavours, it seems more probable that outstanding debts might have been at play in Demetrios's murder and perhaps Millerad was considered a loose end by those involved. But his connections to heroin also can't be overlooked as throughout 1999, a man involved in the heroin business named Tom Scarborough went on a rampage throughout Melbourne, attempting to murder three different people, one who had a small debt owing to him, one who'd simply pissed him off, and another was actually a police officer attempting to arrest him. Scarborough was eventually convicted of three counts of attempted murder and drug trafficking, getting a 20-year sentence with a 15-year minimum. While unrelated to the Melbourne gangland killings, it certainly shows the volatility surrounding the drug trade at this time. But it wasn't just the outward drug trade that had potentially deadly associations. The fruit and vegetable industry was another. Joseph Quadara was previously a millionaire, having owned and operated a string of successful fruit and veg shops. But over time, he'd stressed himself too far and had a long line of creditors by the time he declared bankruptcy in 1994. Joe, 57 at this time, was now the produce manager at a Woolworths store in Toorak. He was noted for his boundless energy and meticulous nature when it came to produce quality. On the 28th of May 1999, Joe arrived for work around 3am and drove his green Commodore into the Woolies car park, where he was then set upon by two gunmen who shot him repeatedly whilst he was still in his car. A supermarket truck driver later discovered his body some hour and a half later. The motive behind Joe Quadara's murder remains unclear. On the surface, he didn't appear to have a swag of underworld connections or enemies in general. However, there's more than a number of eyebrow-raising links. Firstly, at his funeral a few days later, Jason Moran and Graham Kinnebra were in attendance. Secondly, a stolen car, apparently connected to another fruit and veg market identity, was found burnt out, only a short way away from the murder scene on that same morning. Thirdly, it was later discovered that Joe Quadara had an affair some years earlier with a woman and she'd given birth to his son. This woman was in some way related to a man named Keith Fowray, 
a career criminal, painter and docker, with armed robbery and manslaughter convictions at this time. Faure later comes into the main storyline of the gangland killings. Joe Quadara was said to be good with his fists when he was younger and streetwise. If there'd been any hint that someone had a grievance or someone, maybe a creditor, was trying to collect, he wouldn't have been arriving at 3am on his own in a dark car park. This is potentially where the seedy side of Melbourne's fruit and veg markets and the honoured society or mafia come into play. Joseph Quadara wasn't the only man who bore this name. There was another Joseph Quadara. And this guy had been implicated in a coronial inquest as having prior knowledge of the murder of one Alfonso Moratore, which occurred in 1992. Moratore was the brother-in-law of Frank Benvenuto. Frank was at this time in 1999 said to have taken his father Liborio's place as Melbourne's godfather. He was also a fruiterer. So there was a theory that perhaps Joe Quadara's murder had been attempted retribution, ordered by Frank, but ultimately a sad case of mistaken identity. Unfortunately, we simply don't know and likely never will, as those alleged to have been involved are no longer with us. What we do know is that at this point in time, market godfather Frank Benvenuto had been associating with a man named Victor Pierce, a notorious criminal accused and subsequently acquitted over the Wall Street police shootings in 1988. Pierce was said to have become muscle for Benvenuto, but he wasn't the only one brought into the fold by the seemingly reluctant Benvenuto, who'd not displayed a particularly keen interest in following his father's footsteps in his younger days. He'd also recently recruited a young man named Benji Venuman into his growing fold, a name not well known at this time, but we'll hear again and again throughout this saga. His connection to Joe Quadara's murder will likely never be proven, but it's certainly speculated that this was the first time Benji Venuman pulled the trigger with lethal consequences. He'd do so many times more after changing alliances a couple of times, moving into the year 2000. But we'll talk more about all of that next week in part two of the Melbourne gangland killings. Bye for now.